Hello friends, how's it going? It's Matt, you're listening to episode 106 of the Looking Sideways Action Sports Podcast. It's the show where I try and uncover the most fascinating stories in action sports and other related endeavours. How's everyone doing? Surviving the festive season. Thanks for tuning in which to this one, which is the third instalment from my Portland series and I hope you enjoy it. So I've got my old mate Annie Fast on the show today, which was great. Firstly, because I got to hang out with somebody I hadn't seen in years. Secondly, because she's got such a great glass ceiling smashing story. Now, Annie's a writer and journalist who I first met sometimes back in the early 2000s, maybe. We struggled to remember, to be honest, but we worked out it's probably at the US Open or similar. You know, being writers and snowboarders who were both working hard on magazines, we hit it off straight away. We stayed in touch over the years. Work together every now and again, but you know, always swapping notes and encouraging each other in our various endeavors. So then Annie got the plum job for a writer in the entire snowboarding industry when she was made editor of Trans World Snowboarding, which was a very proud moment and something completely deserved. And I'm not just saying that because she then started commissioning me to write regular stories and features for Trans World, which included a long running column on the Olympics, which is a great moment for me proud moment somebody who grew up with Transworld always considered it to be the pinnacle of snowboard media when I started out writing for stuff like White Lines couldn't ever really imagine being published in Transworld so yeah you can imagine how stoked I was about that anyway Annie then left Transworld to take a job in the nascent online content industry as she explained during our conversation um, and today she lives in Big Sky Montana where she's raising a young family snowboarding as much as she can and continuing to work as a journalist and a copywriter and that's another really interesting dimension, the, the parenthood thing, because it's something that just isn't addressed in action sports in general. What happens when you decide to become a parent? And is it possible to balance a career in this industry with parenthood? I don't just mean as an athlete either, because throughout action sports, basically very little provision for parenthood. And it was really interesting hearing Annie's experiences about this since she's become a mum. So yeah, really interesting tale of somebody making it in the industry and how they've balanced that life with the demands of, well, ordinary life. And if that's not a theme that chimes with pretty much everybody that listens to this podcast, then I don't know what is. Big thanks to Annie for making such an effort to come on the show. It was great catching up. Hope you enjoy this episode. Here it is, me and Annie Fast. Enjoy. doing good this is it by the way okay straight we're doing it. straight yeah. in yeah it's good yeah. to see you after this long yeah we hiatus. just try to work it out weren't we um yeah i think probably last time we hung out was us open in vale okay when did you leave Transworld? 2012 sounds about right okay around but i've been then. going to the us open uh since then quite a bit yeah uh, yeah yeah no it will be because i was over there while i was doing loads of work for uh, Nokia at the time okay and Nokia were doing loads of sponsorship of, of that event I think that was probably about it anyway okay yeah. that sounds right so you brought some mags did we get them out I did yeah where did I put them though here they are I hit them over here what was last so you so Annie's brought me a load of trans worlds from her tenure so when was last time you looked at these um, I was down at Transworld this summer visiting Chris Wellhausen I still go down to Encinitas a lot and right. um, I kind of poked in there to get the issues that I didn't have, which actually were the four volumes that I did as the editor in chief. I had, I was there for 10 years and yeah. I kept those first six years pretty tidy. And then uh, so you kept them all. I kept them. I kept them all. Yeah. We right. actually bound our volumes for a while there before a book binder went under. Really? Yeah. So you've so got, you've got like the actual sort of each volume. In. <clears throat> yeah. I think I have six bound volumes and then I just have the last four from, I think it's from 2002 to 2012 now it's kind of my kind of impressed you kept my library i didn't keep any of the white lines i don't i'm glad i did because nothing exists outside of these print issues yeah There's no online any great to see him looking at the old um the old logo before mm -hmm. you changed it did you change the logo then is that you um uh yeah we did we we always were told to make it bigger and bigger and bigger right <laughs> but then i think uh I don't know if it changed much past. I don't know if it did change much past after I left. Yeah. So do you, when was the last time you looked at these then? Um, 
I pulled him out of the closet this summer from Transworld. There's an archive there um, that we used to be really precious about. But, yeah. Um, we're not yeah, so yeah. precious. weren't weren't so precious this summer about it. Um, yeah. And I think Chris Wellhausen trusted me to take good care of them. Right. Um, but I haven't like cracked these. No, I haven't cracked them since since probably we printed them. Did it feel like a while ago? It does now. It, I I still think of it as not that long ago, and I think it's because um, after I left Transworld, I had another job for about three years, and then I kind of kept stopped keeping track of what I was doing, and yeah. times passed. Yeah, and also because that was like a content thing, wasn't it? So a bit different actually having like the physical magazine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's it's great to see it. You must be stoked, like to be able to get it all out, and because so you you didn't start as editor though, right? No, I started at the very bottom. Yeah, um, I started as a a associate editor on the special issues. So right. It was part time coming down to California in the summers from Bozeman, Montana. And working with Kurt Hoy on the resort guide, the buyer's guide, and the photo annual. And then I would go back to Montana right. at the end of the summer. Because you're from Big Sky? From Bozeman. Bozeman. Yeah. But Big Sky's the resort. Big Sky's the resort. So how far is that from Bozeman? About 30 miles. Okay. But then there's also Bridger Bowl, which is about 10 miles. Right. So where did you grow up riding? Um, I grew up... My dad was in the Air Force, actually. So we lived all over the place. And I oh, moved really? to Bozeman um, when I was 17 to go to college. Oh, I didn't realize that. Moved there from Northern Virginia, Fairfax, Virginia, is where my dad was last stationed. And that's where I learned to snowboard at in those little mountains. Like it was called Massanutten and Sea Liberty. What, you can ride there? Yeah. Right, I didn't know that. (laughs) It's not that fun, but... Wow. Yeah, so I learned to ride there. That's quite an undocumented part of the scene. Oh, yeah. Yeah, completely. Um, There were some cool shops and kind of a cool scene. Right. But most people left if you really got into snowboarding. Yeah, so that was when you first sort of, what, did you ski before that or did you? I skied, yeah, we grew up skiing. Both my mom and dad are skiers. My dad's a ski instructor, he retired and he's a ski instructor at Big Sky now. Right. So it was a big part of our growing up and then we would take like an annual ski trip every year, somewhere cool, either to Europe or uh, the first time I started snowboarding was in Grand Targhee. Okay. So we had done a family ski trip to Jackson Hole, which is where my aunt and uncle live. Right. And uh, stayed with them. And I remember riding up the chairlift and hearing the sound of snowboarding before I ever saw it. I didn't even know it was a thing. Right. And I saw the snowboarder go under the lift and I was like, that. I want to do that. Right. Went to Targi the next day. That's quite a nice Took place a to be yeah. able to do it. Yeah, it was great. It was a girl gave me a lesson. I don't know who she was, um, but I got a snowboard lesson and then never skied again. Wait, so where'd you go in Europe? So you did trips like when you were a kid? Yeah, we lived in um, near Garmisch for a while. Oh, did you? Yeah. And right. so we would do little like, we were at uh, NATO. Right. And we would do little bus trips. They'd have bus trips to all the resorts around there. So we'd ski it in Garmisch and then we'd go all over. Like every weekend, my parents would sign up for some bus trip and we'd get on some bus and go to some epic resort. Right. And locks and... So you, you experienced all that from when you were quite young? To, to like just check out all these resorts and yeah right yeah that's that's right that's amazing and it's funny as a kid like you remember food like i remember eating like crepes on the slope side at yeah, you know, right. some french resort or eating spaghetti at some italian resort or you know those are the memories i have yeah well that's what you keep with you isn't it yeah yeah so um you moved around quite a lot then when yeah. you, when you were younger yeah right so and then but then you ended up in in montana like when you were 17 did and did he was that like when you where you sort of settled did he sort of stay there yeah we we would spend our summers my grandparents had a cabin just in helena montana on a lake and so we would go back every summer and um one time i ended up going to bozeman with a friend and saw bozeman and it was a lot different than helena and i saw the potential and i learned about the ski areas around there and i was like this is it and montana state university was pretty good college right affordable so i got in and right that was it okay and then you were so did you what did you study there then i studied cultural anthropology okay yeah right where'd that come from um i think i was undeclared the first two years then i took a year off moved to bend oregon snowboarded and came back and i sort of assessed my um what what um 
whatever courses I had taken and what I could do quickest to graduate. And it looked like I had a lot of liberal arts and right. I was interested in everything. And so she was like, well, cultural anthropology, you know, you can study everything. And so that is kind of the, the way I went. But in, in the end, it was a really cool major. It was, uh, you know, studying different cultures and you, it kind of gives you a really interesting perspective on people and people's motivations. And yeah, so it's been it was it was a good major. And were you like interested in like journalism and writing at this point? No, it wasn't until my senior year actually um, had to do a lot of big papers. Yeah. And I was doing a complicated paper on, um, I think it was about how people use hedges when they speak. <laughs> okay. And so I was going to like community meetings and it was kind of hard to put it all together. And I eventually did a good job, got an A on it. And my teacher was like, you know, this you're a good writer. Right. And I was like, oh. Huh. I kind of actually enjoyed that. It was hard and I was like proud of what I did at the end. And yeah. And then I understood that I was, you know, like that was maybe something I wanted to pursue. You kind of need that teacher, don't you? It is cool. Yeah. You, yeah. Do, you don't realize Dr. Larry Carucci, my Yeah. <laughs> big influence. Year. Had yeah. you ever thought about it until that point then? Or did you just, did you didn't really realize you had an aptitude for it? Um, I don't think I did. No, I just, I really liked school. Right. Um, I, I got good grades. I, you know, worked really hard at school, but I didn't. I always knew I wanted a creative job, but I was not a creative, like I didn't think I was a creative person. Like I wasn't artistic. I wasn't good at any of those creative outlets that I, that were like. The um, kind of traditional. Yeah, traditional creative yeah. outlets. And then once I figured out that I could write, I fully went full on into it. I was like at the library buying like the writer's handbook and researching right. it my own. And, okay. um, and there's some amazing writers in Bozeman there's a huge writing community in Bozeman and Livingston yeah it's quite an, it's quite an artsy scene isn't it yeah quite a liberal like creative scene yeah and it's all the kind of writing I wanted to do like Tim Cahill's there David Quammen there's um on down there was some really amazing writers who right um would give talks at the bookstores and I did some writing workshops in Livingston and figured it out right and you so you said that you liked when you were talking about the the, you like the work aspect of it as well you like the challenge of it um like the work of writing yeah like the the, the feeling of actually yeah i mean it's it's like uh, putting test, a puzzle together yeah right? like testing yourself you know? yeah it's it's kind of painful like any writer would say and you never know i always say well i you know when you're in high school or whatever you learn how to write you know, and you, you've got your intro paragraph and you've got your, you know, and I, and I never figured out writing like that. I literally put everything on paper. I, I say it's like uh, that, that little glue project where you put glue on the thing and then dump the sprinkles on and then shake it out. That's yeah. kind of how my writing comes together. It's like I'll put everything on paper and then I'll look at it and I'll be like, what do I even have here? And then shake it out, shake it out, shake it out. And then eventually I'm happy with the result. It's not the most straightforward process. And that's how, it's how you approach it now. Um... I think I spend a little bit t more time in my head before I put it on paper now. Like yeah. I, there's a lot of thinking and, you know, when you're driving or doing whatever, running or doing, you know, working out, I'll, I'll think about it and f get it a little bit more sorted out in my head before I start writing these days. So when did you start putting the snowboard in and, and the writing together then? Pretty quick. I think my first published article was in Coolar magazine. Really? Yeah. In the UK? No, there was a US Coolar. Ah, right, okay. Yeah, and I think they actually got bought by um, Backcountry Magazine right. a while ago. But um, one of my friends got caught in an avalanche in the Northern Bridgers. And I wrote a blog for it or something for it for um, World Boards, which was a lo local snowboard shop. Okay. And then Coolar, the editor, hit me up and he's like, hey, can we reprint this in Coolar? You know, maybe like shape it up this way. And I was like, yeah. And then he paid me. I was like, oh. Right cool yeah that works yeah so pretty quick like i think maybe probably 1999 or something was when i first got published in Kular. right and then did you kind of start actively sort yeah. of pitching and fairly aggressively yeah and i i had a lot of luck like i i got published pretty quick in a lot of magazines um that aren't around anymore <laughs> like in, in snowboard bikes well in um I can't even remember the name of the snowboard magazines, but also outdoor magazines. There was a Hooked on the Outdoors magazine that I got a feature in. And right. I was writing for Coolar, doing a lot of articles for them after that. And um, and then the snowboard magazines, it wasn't quite Snowboarder or Transworld. There were some smaller magazines back then that I was yeah, writing was, for. I mean, there was loads around, wasn't there? Yeah, there was just little magazines everywhere. Yeah. yeah. I mean, even in Europe, we had like, well, Jesus, even in the UK <laughs> at one point, we had 
four magazines. Yeah. You know, like when I was starting out, same sort of thing. Like, oh, I was going to pitch everyone, mm-hmm. you know. And there was actually like, you know, enough people that you could you could pitch really. Yeah. Like, yeah. To sort of think about making a living. Were we emailing back then or was it like, was I putting stuff in the mail? I, th- um, I remember when I first started writing for white lines we hand write everything and faxed it i feel like i might have put stuff in the mail yeah yeah i know i applied for an internship at outside magazine and i put it in the mail and sent it off yeah yeah <laughs> definitely when i started i used to hand write the articles because yeah. i obviously couldn't afford a computer yeah and it wasn't like everyone had like laptops no i think i think i did handwrite them too and i had a computer pretty soon after that but i don't even know if email was yeah I, and people certainly didn't really use it did they you know it wasn't no. like a kind of like okay we're gonna email everything you yeah know? but that sounds crazy even when i say it out loud so i'm not sure it wasn't that long ago i know it's like <laughs> 20 20 odd years ago yeah so yeah i mean that's how we used to have some ridiculous mistakes in, in white lines because uh-huh. um, basically the girl at the office would then get these faxes like <laughs> handwritten and would then type them up you know didn't know anything about snowboarding obviously so crazy that's so typo funny. strewn <laughs> yeah so when did you start getting traction in the kind of like you know the bigger mags um i think i started becoming the bozeman montana girl right so i think initially i started doing you know i was the go-to for like doing a spot check on big sky or bridger writing about some of the snowboarders around town um i got the media jihad in snowboarder so yeah. that was in the back of the magazine that um, was like the roundup thing wasn't it yeah it was like a roundup article and there was probably like 12 of them you had one i had the european you one. did the uk one there yeah. was one in jackson hole socal and i think all of those people that were writing those things went on to some sort of career in snowboarding yeah that was one of my first gigs that yeah and that, that was like a big moment for me obviously because you used to sort of buy snowboarder and Transworld. Mm-hmm. that was always like you know if we could get because for, for UK riders, if you got a shot in Transworld, it was like, so, it's so massive, you know? Yeah. And um, yeah, I remember being like, oh, I've ever got a story in Transworld or Snowboarder. Yeah. yeah. So when they actually were like, oh, do you want to write that every month? Yeah. It was like, pretty sweet. And then you so have I, connections Jesus. at the magazines and you're like, hey, Pat Bridges. You yeah, know? exactly. What about this, you know? And I think it was maybe Sullivan editing it back then. Was it? Maybe, yeah. 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 Could have been. So that was like your first industry in. That was my first industry in. And then also writing spot checks. I think I wrote a spot check on, on for Transworld on Big Sky. And I think uh, from there, Kurt Hoy, who was... Was the, he editing Transworld? He was a special issues editor at Transworld. And he hired me to help him with the special issues. So I was like an as- assistant editor of the special issues, which was like the very lowest bar you could start on. Right. As, you know, as an uh, editor at Transworld. So... I would just go down from Montana and help him out with the buyer's guide and the resort guide and the photo annual and then go back home for the winter. And I did that for two seasons before I got hired full time okay. with him. So, and you were just living up in Mont- Montana riding? Yeah, those those years are hard to piece together because there was... Because you were like riding you like good snowboarder as well, right? So you, I was, yeah, I was a sponsored snowboarder yeah, and I was yeah. also, I had been working at the snowboard camps for about five summers. So. so you were, and was that what you were trying to do at that point? I think once I got out of college, um, I realized, you know, I'd always been in college and also pursuing snowboarding, working at High Cascade. I worked there from like 95 to 2000 ish. So you did that every summer? I did that every summer. So I'd get out of school, go to Mount Hood, coach, be a counselor, whatever it was that summer. And then go home and go back to school. And then I think um, 99, I graduated from college that winter and then did whatever that spring, just snowboarded without school for the first time ever right. all winter. And that was awesome. And I was writing for Arcteryx and uh, Airwalk and um, doing a lot of backcountry in Montana. There was always a sl- sort of split between what I did in Montana as a snowboarder and what we did up at Hood. You know, Hood was freestyle and jumps and rails. Yeah. Then I'd go back to Montana and we'd go to like Cook City and Splitboard or ride the ridge at Bridger or like do some lines at Big Sky. And it was a completely different kind of snowboarding. So that was fun. I don't know where I was going with that. But so I did have a sponsor, did have sponsors, but I kind of knew I wasn't good enough to be a pro snowboarder right. and make a living at it. And I also, it wasn't enough for me. Like it, it wasn't fulfilling enough just doing that. I kind of. So early on you were, you kind of thought, did you, did you want to, try and get a career in like the inverted commas industry though did was that the path you wanted to pursue oh uh, i th- i never there was never any other 
Option. job in the industry that I was really interested in. I didn't want to be a team manager. I didn't want to, like, I didn't especially love going to trade shows or. Yeah. It's, being... I mean, it's a good gig though, isn't it? It that's, is. That's, yeah. That's the thing. I mean, I remember being like, I actually think this is like probably the best gig around really right. you'd have to be you'd have to fling yourself off jumps and true you know i probably i mean if someone had come up to me and be like do you want to be the roxy tm i would have been like yeah <laughs> you know because i think i was you know i pieced together every kind of job there was to in bozeman probably barista i was working um i actually actually got a really good job towards the end living there i was a, a guide at the yellowstone club right so I did that for two winters when that, and that's a private members only area next to Big Sky. Okay. And so when that launched, that started right around 2000 and I got a job being a guide and there was nobody there. So I would just ride this mountain that was kind of like Bridger. Right. And just shred and occasionally show someone around the mountain and then go back to snowboarding. Nice. It was a pretty sick job. Yeah, that sounds pretty cushy. Yeah, so, and it paid well. Yeah. Um, so you got hired as staff at Transworld around this time. Three, and did you pre? So presumably, when you're doing, because those summer camps in the US industry are like kind of where everybody meets, right? Yeah, it's like everybody knows each other. Everybody goes over a year. Is that where you, you kind of started making those connections that you eventually had when you were working on staff? Yeah, exactly. Um, that was actually really key for me to have those connections, like organically, like I. I moved to Bend for that one year in 95 and uh, met some people like I was telling, I met Dave Sapniewski was the first person I ever met there. Really? Just randomly in a coffee shop playing right. chess. I, I moved to Bend not knowing anybody. I just wanted to go ride at Mount Bachelor. And, um, was he working for Transworld at that time? No, he was a pro snowboarder. Right. Yeah. Okay. And, uh, and then Chris Jamison and Aaron Draplin and a whole bunch of just a whole bunch of snowboarders and also like close friends that I made there. Yeah. And then we ended up, my friend Hillary and I ended up getting a job at camp the right. next summer. And then, I mean, those summers, it was everybody, you know, it's like every name. When I look back in these magazines now, I'm like every name in the magazine is somebody that I knew from when we were all just getting going at camp, you know, everybody, everyone from like the, the coolest team manager to the coolest snowboarder to the, you know, Everyone was there. Scotty Whitley, I mean, whenever Sean I, White was when, hiking the pipe. Whenever I used to go to those camps, like probably went a couple of times over the years, but you could really see that. Yeah, you could really see that was like kind of the heart of it. It was. It was. It was such a. Um, it was such the hub of snowboarding. Yeah. Like everybody needed to be there in the summer. That's where you needed to be to be part of snowboarding. Yeah. So that's kind of where you you know made your network for want of a better, yeah. better yeah. phrase, right? So what was your first role at Transworld when you eventually got hired? Um, associate editor okay and I still kind of focused on um, resorts and gear was kind of my specialty so those are the columns that I was in charge of and did you move to Southern California I did yeah I moved to SoCal and um, yeah just moved to Encinitas moved in with um, this girl Kristen who was also working at Transworld and I had Jardine my friend Jardine was an events manager at Transworld so I had some friends down there already and then made friends pretty quick you know working at Transworld and how is that I think that was the hardest part about Transworld even though Encinitas is like you couldn't think of a cooler place to live you know yeah. on paper it was hard to be a snowboarder passionate about snowboarding writing about snowboarding every day living at the beach well, it's kind of a disconnect wasn't it a huge disconnect even though there was um a lot of events in like in september all the movie premieres would come down everyone would leave camp and come down to socal and hang out and then it was super fun and then everyone would leave and then you'd just be grinding away at the magazine wishing it wasn't summer still and we, we did you because that was like a hub of the surf community and the surf industry so yeah. how was the snowboard gang perceived down there uh and skate industry too um <coughs> yeah because all the skate brands have got their hqs around there and I think, um, I mean, a lot of, there was a lot of overlap between the skate or between the surf and snow industry, like with some of the, you know, Quicksilver and Billabong and some of those brands. Um, I think we were well received. There was a moment when like Freeze Magazine, Ski Magazine came into Transworld and that was kind of funny. That didn't really go over really well. Right. Even though all this, like the snowboard staff got along really well with the Freeze staff. Um, it just didn't seem like a good fit for them or us. Um, right. But I think the snow brand, like snowboarding, always fit in really well with, with the skate and surf brands. But like at being snowboarders down in, we were all a little bit miserable come fall. 
everyone yeah. just wanted to get the hell out of here, we, out of there. It must have changed a lot down there, though, over the, over the years, though, right? It did a lot. I mean, it, it went from somewhere where snowboarders would come down in September to somewhere where snowboarders moved to permanently and based out of um, as snowboarders made made more money and I don't know, you know. Yeah, like kind of snowboard retirement community. Yeah, for sure. Like when I first moved down there, it was like <laughs> Todd Richards and uh, um, gosh, I'm not going to think of who else was down there at the time, but um, mostly Todd Richards. <laughs> still there. <laughs> still there. Yeah. Still owning. I think he still has Colorado plates on his truck. But and, everybody uh, kind of like started to gravitate towards that in the summer, right? Basically. Yeah. I mean, it's really, there's like great physical therapy, like surfing is probably really good for you. Like soaking in the ocean, you know, it's a fun, relaxing environment. It's pretty awesome. Like it's a lot different than when I moved there Yeah. in the early 2000s. Yeah. It's a lot more welcoming, a lot brighter. There's a lot more going on. It used to shut down at like, like dark in Encinitas like unless you're going to the saloon or like the Lucadian or something one of the bars it was done there was no right dressing up and going out or like fancy meals or anything it was pretty burrito joints and like right. dive bars yeah it's not the kombucha kind of there was no, yeah, yeah no yeah. kombucha not a lot of that going on but that made it a lot more affordable for you know yeah. the wages we were receiving back then too. yeah so, so you got the staff job and then so that was the start of like you said like the 10 years you kind of did it yeah um which must have been amazing like to kind of have that opportunity to you know i mean it's like such an iconic title at that time yeah i was i mean i think the first the first year i came down there when i was still uh, associate editor for the special issues uh we pretty much finished early and so kurt was just like you know just go hang at the beach you don't have to i think there's like two weeks left in like of my paycheck and and I was so stoked on being at Transworld. It was just such a cool environment and so exciting and creative. And I think I like stuck around and just did the exposureometer. Like Leah Crane was working at this at business and she's like, we could use help like right. exposureometer. And I was like, oh, you want me to like watch snowboard videos? <laughs> Sweet. I'll, and so I just like went and sat like Kurt had bailed. He was like, we're done. You know, photo annuals off to print. You can leave. I was like, no, I'll just keep going in for the next two weeks and just like watch you know, flip through magazines and tally the exposureometer for Transworld Business just so I can like stay in the mix because I was just so hyped on being in the magazine or at, at Transworld. And that never really changed while I was there. I was always, I was always, I mean, I was always a fan of Transworld. Um, when I started there, like Louise Balma was still around and she's one of the original um, Larry Balma's wife. And yeah. there was just so much history and um, a lot of tradition and just uh, it's just really cool people doing really cool things. So it was just really fun to be around. So how did your role end up expanding then? Were you, were you able to like travel a lot? Did you start moving into features? And Yeah, I started doing features um, pretty quick. I, we all had our, our uh, columns that we were responsible for. But um, yeah, I did a lot of traveling. Traveled the world like you do working at Transworld. Um, amazing trips. I mean, I'm not going to rattle off all the countries I went to, but, um, you know, s lots of standout trips to Iceland. I guess I I do want to just rattle them all off. But, uh, <laughs> well, it's kind of the heyday, wasn't it? Right. Yeah. You just like, People you, you would, the you know, had a bit of money. everyone would like fight over who got to go to like, you know, do, I want to go to South America. Well, I'm going to New Zealand, you know, like it, that's how it was. And you would just go to the, like the editorial pitch in the beginning of the season and you'd come with like just wild ideas like, we want to go to Switzerland and snowboard with my friends and be like, okay, sounds good. Yeah, you can do that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, so we would do that and that's what we did. Um, so no complaints there. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then you started to kind of move up a bit, right? And get more responsibility and kind of what well, ended up becoming editor in chief. So when did that happen? Um, it was, I think I held every title. So I went from, I went to associate editor and then I think Shirowski left. She wanted to go back to Portland or she wanted to just, she was from Colorado. Yeah. She was the had senior editor. For, yeah. for Jennifer Shirowski. And um, when she left, I think I took over as senior editor. I might've been managing editor before that. Um, senior editor. And I think at Transworld, it was just kind of like you, there was no one telling you not to do things. You know, it wasn't like a unionized type thing. It's like you would just start taking on more and more responsibility because there was always something to do. So that's kind of my personality type is just to keep doing more and more stuff. And you would kind of do the job before you got the job. And so I think that's what happened with managing editor. You know, I probably just, Kurt Hoy was the editor and he was always a really good mentor. 
um, and always like really took the time to teach me how to do stuff and willing to, he liked to travel a lot too. So there was always extra work to do, you know, when he was gone. So I think I just started picking up slack around the office and, and moving up just, you know, in the way that I was already doing the job, might as well give her the title type thing. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so that got me up to senior editor and I was senior editor for a while. And then, um, when Kurt left, it wasn't a given that I was going to get the job. Right. Did you have to apply for it? I did. Yeah. Yeah. Nick and I both applied for it. Nick Hamilton. And you got it. I got it. Yeah. And I think it's because I was already doing it. Right. Yeah. Yeah, Sure. At that point I was probably already doing it and, um, it, it would have been, uh, not a good look if they had, they were actually, yeah, they did look outside for someone and right. I think they realized that there's no reason that I shouldn't get the job, but it, it wasn't like the, the most straightforward, like it wasn't like, well, obviously you're next, you know, here you go. I think they had to think about it for a minute, which is, which was a little uh, weird. Did you have to, did you have like a creative vision for it? Did you, did you look at it as like, I'm going to, I see how I want it to be and I'm going to change it in this way. I mean, I think I always wanted it to be writer-driven. Obviously, as a writer. So, yeah. Yeah. A write, writer. Writer-driven. Writer yeah, like yeah. The, the snowboarders being a big part of it. I always wanted the readers to feel a part of it. I wanted it to be very inclusive. I didn't want it to be exclusive, you know? Like, I didn't want people to feel like they were on the outside looking in. I, I wanted, you know, it's like snowboarding. If you're reading a snowboarding magazine, it's because you're a snowboarder, so you shouldn't feel alienated from it. Well, it's kind of a challenging thing with action sports mags, really, isn't it? Because on the one hand, you've got to, like, report about the industry and you've got to, like, represent the brands and, you know, the scene, kind of what we're talking about. But that can necessarily be cliquey if you're not careful and, and, and excluding because you can basically present a world that the readers are looking at like well I'm never going to be part of that and obviously the act of snowboarding as a ordinary person is is very individual it's just got nothing to do with the industry isn't it so it's kind of like find that balance isn't it mm-hmm. of like the way that people can ordinary snowboarders can feel part of it right and I, I think we had franchises that were already doing that like um the board test and the rider or the resort pole and um and then certain columns in the magazine like i I worked really hard to keep the male column in it because it had readers voices in it and yeah and trans was always really good at that like like having that reader interaction yeah you know like the angry interns always really liked as well because it's kind of that you know like about that part of the the scene really wasn't it yeah like it's funny like the intern was always kind of the reader you know like if you got in exactly. house and it's just like all oh, these friggin' pro snowboarders doing that you know it was always kind of like uh, it was that voice wasn't it yeah so it was i think through those columns and um some of those features we always did keep it reader focused yeah um and you know i also was always every editor at the magazine and nick hamilton himself like him and i were worked so good together and he had his own, you know, his own projects that he led up and um, it ended up being, I think, really great for for everyone. I, I had a really good time and I just was, I'm just so thankful for the staff that we had. Then everyone, I feel like, had their voice reflected in the magazine and had a good time working there and, you know, I don't know. Did you see it start to change? Like as you, because obviously it doesn't exist anymore. Right. As we know. And like, you know, that's like the arc of the, of the industry really yeah. kind of reflects that, doesn't it in a way? And obviously the media landscape, but when you were there, did you, could you see that coming? Um, I mean, definitely the, the line between ad and edit started to blur. You know, we did a lot more branded content yeah. and it became a lot, you know, like when I started advertisers would buy ads yeah and, you know they quite, had the ear of like the publisher it was quite distinct though wasn't it it was, it was very distinct there was a line yeah. you know and everyone knew what that was and you didn't yeah. really need to tow that to the extent that you do now right yeah and it definitely like it started to blur with branded content and um but it was always i feel like it was still very clear what um what was um you know we from what i heard and after i left it became you know you couldn't pitch a story unless there was a sponsor who was going to pay for the story so it all became you know it was all branded content yeah um in the end which was a real no-no i mean that we we remember at white lines we fought really hard against that yeah 
which was obviously a complete fucking waste of time really. yeah i know we did too like <laughs> you're just you were so passionate about it and like such a journalist about it and then yeah you know took it really seriously like you know yeah getting all like bill hicks on it like oh you can't do that yeah um, like selling it selling it short and yeah so i did see that start to end you know we did lose pages and we did cut issues but you know i think when i started there there was 12 issues a year yeah including the special issues and i mean 12 issues yeah that seems madness it now, was total it? madness and yeah. this is and then you know add in social media which was slowly entering and i i like to um also think about we were also doing online yeah because that um, came in at that time didn't it online was there since i started like lee crane started Transworld online yeah uh, i don't know the exact date he would he would correct me whatever i guess right now would be wrong it was well before my time he, yeah one of the first online um snowboard magazines but um but it was very like we would update the website once once a week, you know. Yeah, the entire staff would go to the U.S. Open, and then a week later we put the results up. It wasn't like the the no. voracious no. beast that it became. Yeah, like by the time I left, it was like live tweeting from the sides of the U.S. Open yeah. and updating that night. And if the video didn't go up that night, we we're blowing it. You know, it was just madness. Yeah. So. So, when did you decide to sort of pack that in then, or to have a change? Uh, I think I did. I did four issues as editor in chief. I was there for 10 years. It's a very cyclical type um, job. You know, you kind of get September is when we start publishing again. Yeah. You get through the winter, you get through the buyer's guide, the resort guide, the, you have to board test, like the writer's poll. You know, you just kind of look down the gun, you know, 10 more issues. It's, it's kind of like, you know exactly what you're in for for the next year. Yeah. And I think at that point I was getting pretty tired, like, and also managing a staff. Yeah. I didn't have any management training. Right. You know, that shit is exhausting. Yeah, right. You know, How many had, staff did you have then? We had two art directors, which are an art, two people in our art department, Dustin Coop and John Antowski, and they were amazing. Um, they've gone on to start Wedge and Lever down in Encinitas. Yep. Just, we had Nick and Chris in the photo department, two associate editors, an online editor, some interns. Um, so I think like around 10. Yeah. It's a lot, a lot of responsibility lot, yeah. as well as also like doing what you had to do. Yeah. So I think I was burnt, but it's a hard job to leave. Um, yeah. just to just walk out of, I think it was, it wasn't going to happen. Um, but then Cersei Wallace, um, it was, um, I had heard about this YouTube sort of funding right. happening. And I had also talked internally at Transworld about whether we were going to take on, you know, YouTube was shopping around the opportunity to, to rate, create original programming for YouTube and they had money, but the, uh, the terms were, were not what Transworld was in, interested in. Right. And, um, it ends up that Wasserman media group that yep. Cersei Wallace an agent was at, um, had done a contract with this network, a bed rocket, and they were looking for a programming director to run this action sports channel. And she was like, do you want to do it? You know, you should talk to this guy. Okay. This is, what do you reckon, like 10, 10 years ago, maybe? This was, no, this was in 2012. Okay, so more yeah. recently. Yeah, yeah. so it's just at the point when people were starting to see it as, obviously YouTube had been around for a while, but yeah. seeing it as a vehicle for branded content and, yeah, you know, that shift started to happen really. It was really early days. Like, I wasn't familiar with, it was pre-influencer, and I think some of the first influencers were on YouTube, like the first people with like huge followings and yeah. huge subscribers and... And so, um, so yeah, that was it. Like YouTube had all these people making content, but they d didn't have any way to control the content. It would just get uploaded, you know, and there it would be, and then it would get a ton of views, but they didn't know it was coming. And, and so YouTube wanted to like, you know, understand what the content was, like, yeah. control it and be able to sell against it. I remember when you got that job, cause we talked a little bit at that time and I remember not really understanding it. It sounds <laughs> hilarious now, doesn't it? But yeah. I, I remember being a bit like, okay, so what, what is that then? Like, yeah. how does that work? Like, which presumably was a little bit what you were like as well. I was like that, yeah. And uh, I, uh, so the company was based out of New York and Micah, a Micah Abrams, who yeah. was previously at Freeze and is now yeah. a head honcho at whatever Transworld is called now. Yeah. What is it called? I it's, can't even remember. <laughs> yeah. It's called, it's... Uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know either. Yeah, <laughs> whatever that is. Whatever yeah. it is. So he's in house there, and uh, smart dude. Yeah, he's a good guy. So he, you know, and I, you know, I, I talked to him, and he's like, "Yeah, do it. It's awesome, and it paid good." Uh, it was like my, uh, I joke that it was my cross rocket or my blue torch, you know, like yeah. my own personal blue torch, which if anyone knows the early internet days when all the editors of the action sports magazines went to work for the yeah, first I mean, it's startup. a good, it's a good 
move. It's a good point to move, wasn't it? Yeah, it was cool. And it was great. I learned so much. The first trip I did was to the X Games. So this is like straight from going to the X Games, Winter X Games from Transworld, which is like fully, I'm, I'm a Transworld. Yeah. It's fine. And then I'm like, I'm with Network A. You've never heard of it. You have no idea what I'm doing. And I'm also here with like a bunch of YouTubers whose yeah. names are like super weird. And uh, we're going to do some cross promotions, you know. And so it's like from the very beginning, I'm just like having to like explain everything. So my job was to uh, line up all the, um, to create content at X Games. Yeah. Um, and then to also create content, like help these other celebrity YouTubers create content that we're going to cross promote with. Yeah. Which was pretty early days, but it was like, um, people whose names you would recognize now from YouTube, if you were a gamer or if you Devin super tramp and this T Martin guy and it was all new to me. Right. And it was really weird and it felt a little kooky, but it worked really well. Like we, we did, uh, did some good stuff and got a huge following and yeah I mean, it was you know for, for a while it was massive wasn't it and and also it was a model that everyone started following mm-hmm. yeah when you i know. look at it now we worked really hard like we did um shows with alana blanchard super yeah. girl we did shows uh steve barra created a p-rod live show for us we, yeah uh like i mean we, we did i don't even know how many hundreds of hours worth of programming in the th- three or four years i was there it was full on yeah um, so why did you, how did that come to an end then? Well, the original, the YouTube funding ran out um, and then it became sponsored content and it just kind of fizzled. I think there's some, you know, mainstream media has challenges with working in action sports because you can't do like a clean um, ad by, you know, like every every snowboarder every action sports person has their own sponsors yeah so like toyota can't come in and just like own it you know there's going to be other logos in there so i think some of those problems came up and and it just kind of i think the parent company bed rocket they just kind of um pivoted right <laughs> right and yeah they pivoted and i pivoted and and it was a it was a clean break right yeah. so what did you do next uh, moved to Bend, Oregon, had a kid. Yeah. <laughs> but that was, that was kind of the, the game plan, you know, to, I did, I did a lot of, I worked with Stance, um, <coughs> down in SoCal and, and launched a magazine for them in-house, Stance Socks. And, um, I did some stuff around Encinitas, but really we were like looking to move. So we did move right. to Bend to get back to the mountains and I went freelance and, um, got a pretty good freelance writing business going right now and have a, a really cool little kid. So it's pretty awesome. I have a house. Yeah. So yeah, like doing some domestic stuff, which yeah. is actually really fun. We have a van because we live in Bend. So we have like van life have a going van. on. Yeah. Gotta have a van. Yeah. Yeah. So just kind of living, like w- working a lot less and enjoying life and snowboarding for fun, which is really fun to do. Like not not on the clock for snowboarding, which yeah. is awesome. Nice. Do the Dirks and Derby every year. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. So I was going to ask you about this, this sort of career break thing is that something you built for talking about because obviously you know it's a, especially in our industry it's a bit of a i guess the question is like you know you plan to have a family yeah you, you said that was the plan but in our industry there's just no provision for that really is that you know if you're if you're a woman like and you've and you've had a successful career like, right. you, like you had you know it's obviously like a really big decision isn't it because it's like I might be leaving that behind and, and knowing that I might not be able to come back yeah. to that. It's not like there's a package no. or there's any support, no. like whether it's as a writer or as, or as media or whatever. It's like, yeah, all right, see you later. Yeah, we could do a whole podcast about this. Yeah, well, that's what I'm, that's <laughs> what I'm kind of interested in though because... Yeah, it is. It's, you know, it's interesting because when we first moved to Bend, I started, people would ask me what I did yeah. and I would talk about myself in the past tense and I was like, that's fucked up. Yeah, like, exactly. That's what I mean. Like yeah. it's, it, it almost feels like that's you're making that a part of that decision is like well that's the end of that part of my life does that make yeah. sense no it did, was did, it did was you feel that? really difficult and then I realized that so many other women that I knew had done this you know and like even Donna Burton you know she or Donna Carpenter she yeah. had taken time off to raise their sons and that's you know and so many times when you talk to these women about it you know later in their lives when they're back at work and back you know in a successful career that's like a one sentence par- like one sentence in like their whole bio it's like she took time off to you know raise her sons and came back and and it's like that brief and it is like and the craziest 
sentence yeah that exactly. you could write a whole book about because you're you're you don't know what you don't know when you're gonna get back you don't know if you're gonna get back you don't know what you're doing you don't know what it's given to you is a is a, almost like an ultimatum right no it's yeah. probably the wrong word you know what i mean like it's 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 a it's a choice that you're gonna have to make that you probably can't go back on yeah well it's not like that for men is it you know at all obviously no i mean the guys in my office like nick had kids chris or nick had his son and no one's expecting chris them had to, kids to yeah and they just kept career. going you know like they didn't miss a step and um even some of the you know there were some women when i look back who had kids and they were back in the office and i didn't think about it you know i didn't think about how hard that was to put your newborn kid in daycare and come back and like um you know, work in the accounting office or something, yeah. you know, I just kind of was like, oh yeah, like that's what you do. And I knew like, once we started thinking about having a kid, I knew that that wasn't what I wanted to do. I wanted to like, if we're gonna have a kid, I want to like, you know, have a kid and spend time with them and like be a part of their life when they're yeah. young. And you can't do that. Like you just can't do that. You, you can't know? do both. Can you? No, there was like, I don't even know what like maternity leave is like, what, six weeks or something insane thing like that it like, is in the states isn't it if that you know like if you have maternity leave and then maybe you get three months or maybe you get six months and i would always when i was at home with flint i would like log those milestones in my head and i'd be like i don't even think i left him in daycare until he was a year old you know that's like yeah. the kind of mom i ended up being like i just really liked spending time with him yeah and, and it is a choice that you have to make isn't it mm-hmm. it's like well i'm either going to do that and that means i've got to give up my career yeah so how do you feel about that? It's so complicated. What I I feel lucky that I was still able to have kids at forty. Yeah, that's how old I was when I had Flint. Um, but so I almost missed that opportunity. Yeah, and that's sad. You know that I really. But when I look at it, I could not have had a kid doing what I was doing yeah. at all. And that's not my fault. That's the fault of you know our industry and you know the the general like policy towards women in the u.s and you know worldwide a little bit but especially in the u.s it's really depressing um there's just no way it would have worked at all you know i could have cut back and i i look at you know like when muzzy quit um he was a senior editor for a while and he like stepped back to start his own thing but he was still like stayed on as like a field editor i was like that would have been pretty sweet to do yeah but um i had kind of been away from Transworld for three years by now and kind of stepped away from like the full full snowboarding scene I probably still could have done something like that and I probably still could do something like that but um I don't know like um and I still don't know I'm in it right now right like yeah um I'm working because Flint's three right so he's three you're at the point now where you can like look at work again and obviously you know silly thing to say but you know what I mean like yeah that's the point where because obviously there's no difference in your ability to do your job. No. At all. And that's that's a funny thing too. Like when we moved to Bend in December, I was pregnant. Um, I went to the Burton US Open, worked at that. I did like a SIA sessions for Transworld Business, pretty pregnant at that point. Yeah. And then came home and had a kid, you know, like split bordered a little bit, then had a kid in yeah. May. Um, and I think it was a surprise to a lot of people that I was even pregnant, you know, and I didn't, I didn't want people to know because I I wanted to work yeah, and I didn't want people to think that I wasn't taking jobs or like working. Um, so I worked through my whole pregnancy and then I kept taking and looking for work like right away. Like I was writing for snowboard Canada. I wrote for like some of the Australian snowboard magazines. I, I did, um, some features for, Oh, I did Josh Dirksen's interview for Transworld. So I was like really trying, trying to like work really hard at staying relevant within snowboarding and like within the action sports industry. Um, but it like was hard and I don't know why I did like work so hard for that first year. Right. I just wanted to stay in the mix a little bit. Yeah. Well, you try to keep your option open in a way, aren't you? Like out of sight, out of mind, especially once you move away from the industry. Yeah. Even though I was in the middle of snowboarding world, it was still like, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And it it is a bit of an unspoken thing in our industry, isn't it? It's kind of changing a bit with athletes Mm -hmm. slightly, isn't it? There's a couple of people now that are, I guess, Kimmy Fasani is like the most well-known one. Yeah. And then Maria Thompson. I yeah. just, I just read an interview with her and snowboard, but I don't think she's had any of the support that Kimmy's had. You know, I am so proud of what Kimmy did. Like it, 
meant a lot to me too because I don't think that I like came to terms with like how much I had to sacrifice just to have a kid yeah exactly but at the same time I also was like at a point in my life where I, I didn't have anything else to prove and yeah you know I was I didn't I th- you know it's funny because I came to Transworld as a writer who just wanted to like travel and be around snowboarders and write about snowboarding and just be in the mix and then you get a title and then you get like you know you get caught up in that in that um industry like in the business world of like titles and pays and bonuses and you know being you know having esteem or whatever and getting invited to be on you know speak at conferences and shit or whatever you know and you get caught up in that stuff that comes with it yeah i think it's easy to to like lose sight of like why you originally even you know what like what are you even doing you know yeah. like do you is that important to you you know and i think i struggled with that a little bit there was um a job at gopro that i was looking at that was like a uh like a what the hell is a title i don't know some some sort of producer like right executive producer or yeah. something at gopro and i was like is that you know and it was a great title yeah at gopro right before gopro was going public and i was like is that should I? But that wasn't anything like I wanted to have a family. I wanted to get back to the mountains. I was like, why the hell am I even looking at this job? You know, this isn't what I want to do. But you get so attached to those titles. And but then I think I like came to my senses and stepped back from that and with yeah. the bend. But uh, that would have been crazy. So do you now that you're at this point where obviously you've got your life in bend and you, mm-hmm. you know, you it sounds like really happy there and that's going really well. Like, but are, are you at the point where you're thinking about well, how can I go back to the career that I had and, and sort of regain some of that, you know, is that, and uh, it, it must be quite annoying. It is. I mean, it's, you know, it's, <laughs> I don't because mean to put I, it like, like it's super bluntly, but you know. Like, yeah, it's challenging because I did move away. I did have, you know, job offers. I think when the do tour came to Transworld, Adam Cousins called me um, before Gerhard took that job and let me know about it and, you know, wanted me to move back to take it. And yeah. Um, so I, I do feel like people think of me still for those upper, upper level jobs. Um, but I don't want to move away from Bend, you know? And I do see a lot of um, people, I don't know, I was talking to Lee Capozzi about this recently, and Lee was the publisher of Snowboarder. I met her when she was PR at Burton. Uh, her and her husband, Matt Capozzi, moved to Bend a few years ago with their daughters, who are a lot older, uh, or not older, but like in their 11 or nine and 11 and she was she's been working sort of in the same capacity i have you know part-time raising our kids yeah and going through the same stuff and um she just took a director job at mount bachelor right and she was just like i just felt like it was time and she found a good position and you know um and she was talking about how even though she's had these really like upper level jobs a lot of people move to bend and kind of do take a you know like focus on lifestyle a little bit more yeah and are willing to find jobs that maybe aren't like these esteemed jobs or like these you know, like direct you know like these epic yeah these like industry sort of profile jobs you know things yeah. it was just an interesting conversation because she's like you know it's not just me even though she's you know that's a great job that she has as a communications director at Mount Bachelor like yeah. with Powder Corp investing all this money in it um I don't know you know like I'm in the middle of it right now so I don't yeah. know what's next I I would like to use all these skills i mean i think i still have an amazing skill set of like yeah we got you know you got 20 years experience like ran the biggest snowboard mag in the world like yeah yeah pretty employable i would say yeah and i'm trying to like keep it relevant too so it's i yeah i don't know i don't know so that's yeah that's to be determined but i'm still trying to stay um just keep my keep my skills up and and uh find opportunities so how did it feel when, you know, Transworld finally <laughs> bit the bullet? <laughs> I was actually surprised. I didn't think it was going to end. I didn't think the brand was going to end. You know, I thought maybe it would go online or... Yeah. I didn't think that anyone was just going to axe it. it um, yeah, I mean, it was crazy. Yeah. It seemed like a crazy decision from the outside, didn't it? Yeah, I still think it's a crazy decision and it still doesn't feel permanent. You know, like brands always come back. Yeah. Um. But I think it was really sad too. Like I still like, you know, I've got my, um, my clips, you know, and a lot of them are online and there's, they're just dead, they're dead ends. You know, that like the content that we were like so carefully curating over the years online is gone, you know, yeah. it's supposed to like shift to snowboarder. They just got rid of it, didn't they? Yeah. They just got rid of it. And yeah. Which just seems, again, just seems like madness really. Yeah. And I think, 
it, when I look back, it was a, as when we moved the offices from Oceanside, um, God, who was our, our new owners, Bonnier with world publications running us out of Florida. Um, we just kind of like got lo- lost a lot of our history in that move too. There wasn't really? like a willingness to like store anything. So like, you know, there was pallets of like old skate issues and old snow issues and just like tossed in the landfill, you know, and these wow. are things that we were like, so like precious about well, at the time. like our history, isn't it? It was brutal. Yeah. Like banners and all the, all the stuff was just ditched. So. Yeah. I mean, it's just a shame, isn't it? Really? Yeah. It's just sad. I, you know, just it's like a, as a fan of Transworld growing up with it, you know, being a subscriber and then working there for 10 years, I, I just didn't see that being how it was gonna, yeah. you know, continue on. I just figured it would always be there. Yeah. You know, in some form, whether digital or whatever. Yeah. It just felt like, I mean, they're not going to do that, are they? <laughs> you know, yeah. Actually, they're actually going to bin it. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So you're doing a copywriting business, you said. So you that's that's kind of what you're up to now. Yeah, I do. I do about 50-50 editorial writing and copywriting. Yeah. Yep. And so working with some brands, doing copywriting and working with Travel Oregon, which is really fun. Yeah. Writing about like Oregon ski and snowboarding. And uh, yeah, there's kind of like stuff comes and goes. So it's actually a really good gig. And I kind of joke that I'm just haven't been feeling super collaborative after um, the sort of craziness that was the three years I was at Network A and, yeah. and you know, the four years as editor in chief, it was just very, very like meeting and conference call heavy. So yeah. I've just enjoyed sort of the quiet of just like, you know, getting an assignment, writing it, turning it in and you know, sort of being my own boss. Yeah. So how, nice. how do you feel about the industry now when you look at it, you know, this kind of, this like distance that you've got from it? Um, do you see think it's in a good place? I, you know, I'm, it's funny. I was just on this like snowboard history Facebook group. It's so angry. It's so funny. You know, I just, I see these different divisions in snowboarding that just seem absurd to me for the size of snowboarding. Once you get a distance from it, <laughs> um, the, you know, some of the, some of the stuff just seems so silly. Like what, what are they talking about? I'm not on Facebook. so. Oh yeah. Um, they were angry about a article about the lack of um lack of development in snowboard boots it was it was just it was, it right. was like a hundred comments deep of people you know information like, that i'm right not to be on facebook yeah no there's no reason <laughs> to be on facebook um that's just like a funny example but you know we saw snowboarding being i feel like at one point it was cohesive and then it started splittering off into like the big mountain snowboarding the rail snowboarding and then it splittered again into like you know these other categories and now it just feels like uh there's there's not a lot of overlap between somebody who films a street part and somebody who uh like hangs out with jeremy jones and tahoe split boarding yeah it feels like it's a couple different sports yeah that's a good point i would agree with that yeah and it also feels like it's not you know it's clearly not growing anymore um yeah do you you see that because you yeah you you went in heavy on against the New York Times thing, didn't you? you I did. did you yeah. did a you did a piece about that, which was like the whole like snowboarding. Dying. It was uh, it was Outside Magazine, and Mark Peruzzi had written was it, like was, sorry, it was Outside, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, Mark Peruzzi had written something about, and it, and it wasn't so much his point about snowboarding. You know, snowboarding grew so fast for so many years, yeah. and so it was going to slow down. Like you cannot maintain that sort of momentum for twenty years and not have it sort of like slow down and like grow up and acclimate. Yeah, it was a unique yeah. bubble, basically, wasn't it? Yeah, and so at that time, you know, that was probably like six or eight years ago, snowboarding was like slowing down, but it was just maintaining like a normal growth, you know, maybe similar to what skiing was doing. Yeah. S- skiing hasn't had like a astronomical growth, you know, since it was, I don't know, it's like flatlined a long time ago. Yeah, sure, yeah. So I think... Um, so it's almost like to compare it to that level of growth is yeah to that initial bubble yeah is a little bit unrealistic. yeah and i think that's what he was doing in that article so i did write a like it was pretty fun because i was able to use like data and facts yeah. whereas his was sort of like a flippant sort of shitting on snowboarding type yeah i mean it was still, approach it was yeah still the old he's like, a real gas gaslighter is that what they say yeah i mean <laughs> it's still the old like skiing and snowboarding you know is that sort of yeah. bollocks wasn't it really yeah it was one it was one of those it was like the guy in the back of the bar <coughs> type thing um but yeah that was 
but I would say that it has definitely like slowed down and, and it's not because skiing's gotten popular. It's because snowboarding's gotten so damn expensive. Yeah. There's so many reasons where, you know, it's like, it's the, 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 the fact that there is barely a middle class anymore and it's middle class who are snowboarding and buying yeah. passes and it's all that's getting so expensive and no one's getting any richer unless you're rich. So I think, you know, those like bigger uh, factors are going into, you know, the, the growth the slowdown of snowboarding more than, um, more than like the sport, wh- whether the f- sport is fun or not. Yeah. No, I think it's a, f- it's a, it's a fair point because once it lost that kind of cultural edge, mm-hmm. which it had in the early days, and became something else that you could do. Yeah. Yeah. It ultimately, it's pricey. It is. It's so expensive. There's no way yeah. around that. Yeah, it blows my mind. So, how much are you riding? Are you still riding quite a lot when you can. You know, it's funny. Like moving back to us, like living at a ski area, I was kind of interested to see what kind of snowboarder I was. You know, like if I could, you know, like if I had the ability to go up to the mountain every day, like would I? Because yeah. I remember when I was like, you know, a frothing. 20 year old living in montana i that's, pretty much did go up to the mountain the dream yeah, yeah i went up every day no matter what and now i find that i'm like a, a pow border yeah like i i'm like hard pressed to go up on a day that isn't powder luckily there's a lot of powder at mount bachelor yeah nice um so that's I like kind of to, the privilege of living in the mountains yeah isn't it? yeah you don't need to go up and just like carve turns like i do like going up and carving turns early season you know like getting the field back and then in the in the middle of the winter go shred pow and then in the spring it's actually there's a lot of fun like features at mount, mount bachelor that are fun to shred in the spring and they have a really good like pipe up there i still yeah. like riding pipe still riding pipe yeah the smaller Jesus. pipes i actually did drop <laughs> into the pipe at high cascade this summer and <coughs> I didn't have any business in there, but yeah, brave, I survived. Yeah, braver than me. Yeah, but um, yeah, I still, I like to snowboard a lot. I do the Dirks and Derby. I've done the Baker Banked, did the rat race. Yeah, I mean, so, that's one of the fun things. There's loads of yeah. those things going on, isn't there? Yeah, it's super fun. Yeah, I love that. I love that. I love, uh, I don't, you know, I'm not, it's funny to like do a competition with no intention of ever winning it. Yeah. Just like for the fun of competing and like the camaraderie and the experience um which is different you know it's like why is that fun if you don't think you're gonna win but it really is just competing is fun and trying to go fast on your snowboard is fun you know like how is how is that not fun yeah yeah so still snowboarding a lot so there you go that was me and annie fast in conversation i hope you enjoyed it it's a topic i'd like to explore in future episodes of the show i think so if you've got any suggestions for people i should think about interviewing then let me know by emailing me at podcast at we are looking sideways.com like i say thanks to annie for making the big drive from ben to portland well not that big if you're american but you know big deal for us brits it's like whoa jesus really um and sharing a story with me and indeed you lot so on to housekeeping corner and something that came up after myself and Annie had chatted, was Jake Burton actually, because that night over dinner, for some reason we did chat about Jake a little. I think it was actually the very next day that we learned the sad news that he'd passed away. And uh, in the following weeks, I ended up putting together a tribute to Jake, a story for Curator Magazine, which I've been editing over the last couple of weeks. And I spoke to Annie and other people from the industry with personal and professional connections with Jake to ask them to sum up what he meant to him and his importance to the world of snowboarding. Now, it was a really, like I say, poignant undertaking, especially when, you know, I was reading it alongside the other heartfelt tributes to Jake that were doing the rounds in the immediate aftermath of his death, notably from Pat Bridges and Mike Ranquit. Because what the whole thing really revealed was the huge depth of feeling that the entire community had for Jake. And it really underlined the incalculable influence he had over so many lives. I'm not just talking about the industry either, or that's a huge part of it. I think the greatness of Jake Burton really comes from the way he saw the potential of snowboarding and had a vision for what snowboarding could be that essentially made the sport and the entire culture what it is today. Like I say, I don't even mean the specifics of the board and the industry and the equipment. I mean the entire package from back in the early 80s when fulfilling that vision meant fighting ski resorts so that snowboards could even be ridden there all the way through to the entire industry that we all know today. I don't think it's any exaggeration to say that this entire thing is down to Jake's vision and his ability to execute that vision. If you've ever ridden a snowboard, you've definitely been the beneficiary of that vision. And if you're somebody like me, who's personally benefited by being able to have 
you know, a ridiculous career in the industry, then you've personally benefited from that vision. You know, the outpouring of grief when somebody famous dies is always, it's always a very poignant thing. And in this case, I couldn't help but hope that Jake understood the depth of feeling and regard in which he was held by the community and the gratitude everybody so clearly felt for his vision and the way he dragged everyone along with him to create the sport and culture that's clearly so important to so many countless thousands of people. Hopefully seeing that outpouring of affection and grief has helped his family cope in some small way with their own grief. So yeah, thanks Jake. Um, yeah, elsewhere, I want to say thanks to everyone who's been in touch saying how much they enjoyed the episode with John Rattray. As expected, it had a huge response from across the board with plenty of you lauding John's honesty and openness. If you've not listened yet, then what are you playing at? It's out there, and this is a good segue. If you're in the States, you could even ask Alexa to play it for you because, yeah, some technical news for all you geeks out there. The Looking Sideways podcast is now available on Alexa if that's how you like to listen to your podcasts. It's only in the States right now, but, you know, big part of my audience is in the States. So I reckon that's going to be pretty handy news for a few people out there. If that sounds like a bit of you, then get yourself over to Alexa and say something like, Play the latest episode of Looking Sideways Action Sports podcast in Apple Podcasts. Now, I'm sure some of you listening to this are like, why the fuck is he basically shilling for Apple and Amazon mere days after posting a few Jeremy Corbyn memes on Instagram? Yeah, it's a contradiction, I'll give you that. But when it comes to stuff like this, there's always a quote, and in this case, the Walt Whitman quote covers it. I contradict myself very well then. I contradict myself, you know, what can I say? It's the world we're living in, I would suggest. So that's it for this episode. I'll be back on Wednesday, the 25th of December. Something going on that day, I think, with my drumroll Christmas special. It's back. And as I think I mentioned last week, it was recorded a couple of weeks back with my old mates, Tim and Gendel, as part of our now traditional Christmas get-together. Hope you all enjoy that one in which spoiler alert we all got a bit drunk and silly bit like christmas itself then eh thanks for listening i'll be back then nice one <laughs>